humans, hello humans, hello humans of the world. It is me, Ellie Krug with Ellie 2.0 Radio on AM 950. Happy Saturday to you. Oh my goodness. Um, we are here and uh, spring is progressing here in Minnesota. It is. Uh, and we're supposed to get snow on Monday, but it's not going to be. It, I don't care how much it is. It won't stick around. Okay, welcome to another edition of Ellie 2.0 Radio. We have another good show, although my planned guest for the big interview came down with COVID, unfortunately. I'm sending Jennifer great wishes for a speedy recovery. Um, so this week, um, we have an encore interview from Mickey Morissette of Minnesota Women's Press. Um, note, I am a columnist for Minnesota Women's Press, just so you know that, but I'd have... I'd have Mickey's interview as an encore regardless because she's an amazing woman. So you're going to get that for the big interview. And in my C block, I'm going to talk to you kind of human to human. How's that sound? But now, most immediately, I want to feature this week's idealist. He is Mark Elias. He is a Washington, D.C. attorney with the Perkins Coy Law Firm. It's a major national law firm. Some of you may be familiar with Mark Elias because he's a frequent guest on Rachel Maddow's show, as well as Chris Hayes. He's that no-nonsense-looking guy, kind of usually looking a little dreary, um, wearing jeans and a sweater vest. That's the guy, okay? And if you look behind him when he's, when he's speaking, he's got like a old-fashioned couch there and pillows with, with dogs on them. Uh, this is that guy, okay? He's very nondescript, um, and Rachel Maddow likes to have him on the show to talk about election suppression issues. Now, before um, the inaugural, uh, she was talking to him about uh, what was going on with all of the, all of the efforts by, um, to support the big lie and all of the litigation that Rudy Giuliani and others got into. I'll get into that in a second. And indeed, uh, re what really makes Mark Elias an idealist, okay, is that he has a blog, a website that he's created uh, named Democracy Docket. And that website lists all the ways that he, he and his team and others are fighting numerous battles in numerous states to ensure that as many people as possible have the ability to vote. I'll come back to that in a second. Now, I need to give some attribution here uh, because some of what I'm reporting here is from a February 1, 2021 American Lawyer article by um, Dan Rowe. And here's the story of Mark Elias. He was born in New York City and raised in Suffern, New York, 30 miles from Manhattan. He's now 52 years old. Elias is a graduate of Hamilton College and Duke University Law School. He began clerking for Perkins Coy. So this is, so he goes to law school, his second year of law school, which is where all law students hope to have jobs at law firms so they can maybe get offers for the third year so that they don't have to worry about getting a job after law school. He starts clerking for per Perkins Coy while in his second year of law school, and eventually they did make him an offer, and he's been with that firm his entire legal career. In the legal world, this is relatively unusual that you would stay with one firm the entire time. Back in the 1990s, the Perkins Coy firm had a practice advising political candidates and office holders on election law. 
In a relatively short time, Elias elevated that practice to the point where he's become the go-to lawyer for the Democratic National Committee and other Democratic organizations like the Democratic Senatorial and Congressional Campaign Committees and the Democratic Governors Association. Even more, Elias was general counsel for John Kerry's presidential campaign in 2004 and Hillary Clinton's campaign in 2016. Uh, He was general counsel for both of those presidential campaigns. And then I'm going to throw in now a Minnesota connection because when Al Franken got elected in 2008, remember it was that 200 vote or whatever it was, thin margin, Mark Elias was Al Franken's lawyer for that whole recount, dispute, whole thing. So, pretty important guy. On the later note about Hillary Clinton's 2016 presidential campaign, it was Elias who hired Fusion GPS to conduct research on Donald Trump. Yes, I am talking about that Fusion GPS. The company that ultimately produced the Steele dossier and which became the subject of much controversy during the Mueller investigation and its subsequent report. In fact, Mark Elias had to go testify before Congress about that report. So uh, that, that's a blip, okay? Other than that blip, Mark Elias's career has been nothing short of stellar. He's been involved in much litigation involving politics, voting rights, and redistricting. And he's even got four U.S. Supreme Court victories to his credit. I mean, that is, that is a big, big deal. Most importantly, it was Mark Elias and his political law group colleagues at Perkins Coy that defended, hold on, I got to turn the page here, that defended the election results in numerous states last November and December. Elias is the one, he's the one who racked up the 62 to (laughs) 1 total victory ratio, battling not only Rudy Giuliani and uh, Jenna Ellis, not at all what we would call legal powerhouses, but also the very good, I mean, like stellar in their own right, law firms like Jones Day. Elias beat them all. And at one point, Elias had 100 lawyers working on all of those cases between... Uh, November, December, January, a hundred lawyers fighting off all of the challenges to the election results. Remember, the challenges were that there was fraud. There was, you know, we're talking big lie here. Elias, sixty-two to one. <laughs> Come on, that's pretty darn good. Um, in other words, we liberals who believe in democracy um, means that the will of the people. Um, must be listened to, we liberals largely have Mark Elias to thank for the relative political normalcy we're experiencing right now with the Biden administration. Wow. (laughs) Doesn't that just sound so comforting, the phrase, the Biden administration? (laughs) I don't know about you, but it sure warms my heart thinking about President Joe. As uh, uh, Dan Rowe uh, put it uh, in reporting on Mark Elias's legal career, um, the legal uh, Armageddon last fall, as he reported on it, this is what Mark Rowe said in um, The American Lawyer. Quote, Elias is the lawyer many Democrats, especially those on Twitter, thanked for their ability to sleep at night in the days and weeks following the election. 
He and his team at Perkins Coy ran up a 62 to 1 court record against Republicans in post-election litigation. And his propensity to live tweet the legal <laughs> dunk contest brought the public along for a ride. So Mark Elias has 400,000 Twitter followers. Ellie Krug, yours truly here. I'm work. I'm I'm at one thousand ninety nine followers. Oh, by the way, but if you want to be the you know the eleven hundredth follower for me, uh, it's at Ellie at Ellie Krug on Twitter. I'd love to have you follow me. Of course, Elias has garnered much much dislike from those who would seek to shut out the will of the people. Former President Trump called Elias the Democrats, quote, best election-stealing lawyer, unquote. Fox News, the bastion of objective reporting, has called Elias, a, quote, an election-meddling lawyer, unquote. Of course, Elias wears those monikers as badges of honor, as he should. Now, while I'm in awe of Elias for his stellar legal talents and amazing track record of victory after victory, I'm highlighting him really as an idealist because he's not simply sat back and counted the millions of dollars uh, that he's made for his firm and himself. Estimates are that in the last 12 years, Elias and his colleagues have built the democratic entities, those that I listed before and many others. They've built more than $150 million in 12 years. That's a lot of legal dollars to collect. No, Elias has not sat back on that. And instead, he's gone on to create democracy docket which tracks efforts to suppress voting across the country. The website, um, created only in March of 2020, tracks ongoing lawsuits um, and has guest posts from liberal figures like Stacey Abrams, our own Amy Klobuchar, and Michael Bennett. The goal of Democracy Docket is to explain to everyday people the challenges facing our democracy around voter access and suppression. Additionally, uh, Democracy Docket explains the status of ongoing lawsuits like the one currently pending that the NAACP um, out of uh, Michigan brought against Donald Trump for violating the Voting Rights Act by claiming that voting in Detroit, heavily populated by black voters, is a scam. Um, Elias and Democracy Docket are committed to upholding the peaceful transition of power. As he said, here's what he said, quote, when you say that a large percentage of Americans don't believe that the election was fair, what you're really saying is that the norms around the peaceful transition of power broke down. He goes on to say, quote, so democracy reform has to take into account not just the rules for how people vote or how we draw congressional districts, something that I'll be focused on for the next year or two, but democracy reform also has to focus on how we create incentives for political actors to behave in a way that gives people confidence in their democratic institutions and most fundamentally, their electoral institutions. Um, Elias and Democracy Docket are committed to upholding, um, as I said, the peaceful transition of power. But as importantly, Elias is also advocating that lawyers be held to higher standards to protect democracy. So while an attorney, of course, must represent her client zealously, uh, she shouldn't have license to do that in a way that undermines the peaceful transfer of power. That's where we're at now because the big lie, the essence of, Americans demo of America's democracy, the peaceful transfer of power from one president to another is gravely threatened 
Our idealist, Mark Elias, is hard at work ensuring that we never again face an insurrection or a question about the legitimacy of a presidential election. Check out Democracy Docket. Um, All you have to do is Google it. And like me, sign up for its newsletter. All right. Next is an encore edition of my May 2020 interview of Mickey Morissette, editor of Minnesota Women's Press. I think you will enjoy it. And Mickey is just quite the uh, figure. That is for sure. She is quite the idealist as well. When we come back, you'll get that. And then I'll catch up with you on the C Block. Thanks. We're back on LE 2.0 Radio on AM 950 with me, Ellie Krug. So, um, Eloise Cobell, please read up on her rock star, somebody taking on the government. I mean, can't ask for a better idealist than that. But I can because I have another idealist with me on, on the line right now for the big interview. I am thrilled to welcome Mickey Morissette from Minnesota Women's Press. Uh, she is the publisher, the owner of the pre- of the magazine. Mickey, welcome to LE 2.0 Radio. Thank you, Ellie. I'm glad to be on with you. Oh, I'm thrilled to have you here. But we need to say right at the beginning, just so everyone knows, you and I actually have a relationship, not romantic, of course, but we. I am a contributor to Minnesota Women's Press. I've done that several times. So just so everybody knows that, you know... Um, although, uh, you know, I want to have you on this show, not because of that. I want to have you on the show because of the magazine and the work that you're doing. So let me just give everybody quickly a background. Uh, Mickey Morissette, uh, has decades of communications experience, um, including as an editor at the New York times, new media and time Inc. Um, and, and you are the author of a book, Choosing Single Motherhood, The Thinking Woman's Guide. And as a result of your book, you know, popular uh, cult, uh, cult culture came up with the phrase choice moms. It's a phrase that you in- interjected into our, into our culture. Um, you uh, became the single mom of two children, Sophia, who's now nearly 21, and Dylan, who's 16, who I assume is home with you trying to figure out about how to get along with mom so well. Um, you become you became the publisher and the editor of Minnesota Women's Press in December of 2017. And this is partly really what we want to make sure everyone listening now understands, that Minnesota Women's Press has shared the voice and vision of women since 1985, making it the longest continuously produced feminist monthly publication in the country. I just love that, and I love being a part of that. Mickey... <laughs> Welcome, Mickey. Thank you. Thank you. All right. So you have this very, very rich history, which included in part living in New York City, right? Yes. Yep. 18 years I was there. Okay. And then you you come back to Minnesota and you do a number of things, but why in the world did you you buy Minnesota Women's Press in late 2017? 
<laughs> I had friends ask me that. I was in my 50s. I thought I should be preparing for retirement. But uh, as you know, I mean, the, yeah, there's been the founders started it in 1985, ran it for many years. Then the subsequent owners ran it for more than 20 years. And I had been working for them as a freelance writer almost since the day I returned from New York City. And not only did I want to still be involved with women's press for all of those years, because pay is not great, but it, the, the, the women I was connected with in the storytelling were fantastic. So I was very proud of it, as you've expressed as well. It's, a, it's, it's got a, a fabulous mission of sharing the voice and vision of women, which tends to be overlooked still. Um, the other reason I really wanted to step in is because 2017, when the owners were stepping away, was certainly not the time to let a feminist publication die. Right. So I stepped in, even though I love the flexibility of being a freelance writer as I had been, I stepped in to buy a business, which was not my cup of tea. <laughs> Um, I'm a content person, but it's been, it's been wonderful and I have a great team. Well, and you, you surrounded yourself with, uh, some very good people as advisors and you've got a kid, I know you have a kitchen cabinet and, um, (laughs) you know, and, and so tell us, um, how did, I mean, the magazine has changed, uh, literally, uh, quite dramatically since you, you came and, and took the helm. Tell us about your vision for the magazine and we will talk challenges that you now have that no one could have expected. So what, what were your visions and where were you headed before uh, 2020? <laughs> well, as a longtime journalist and storyteller and as somebody who, after I wrote my book, Choosing Single Motherhood, I developed a website for it, which I loved having that kind of platform. And I developed other websites. So I'm very much a fan of the digital media opportunities and the one thing the magazines, since it had been rooted in the 1980s, did not have was as much of a strong digital presence. So I wanted to be able to, to turn things into a, a better platform for storytelling using audio and video, which which we were just, uh, that's kind of what 2020 is about. What we started with is really, div- in the first year, it was really about diversifying the storytelling. I really needed to develop networks to connect with people like yourself and a variety of other people who ha- who have their own stories to share. They don't need reporters to interpret them. Our Strength is first-person storytelling, which enables people to really use their own voice to share perspectives and points of view about things that we really need to be talking about as a society. Um, to showcase that diversity, we I, one of the the first person I brought on the team was Sarah Whiting, who is a photographer and had been also as long as I had been for Minnesota Women's Press. So we started showcasing cover photography of some of our um, uh, some of our subjects in the magazine. That has also appealed to a lot of newsstand pickup. Um, and it's also been able to showcase, I mean, we didn't actually even have um Everybody on our cover for the first couple of years was uh, was somebody from a different ethnicity. Um, than, wonderful, uh, the, wonderful the covers. So yeah, yep, wonderful. So so we've been doing that, um, and then we finally last year was the year we focused on uh, working with a team to create a, a stronger website platform. 
Um, and then this was the, and we also started doing events. Another thing I wanted to be able to yep. do is have people in conversation together. That's very important. So we started doing that as well. So this was the year for creating to, to go more statewide in personal conversations with with people around the state um, to create all. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. Well, okay, but um, so, you know, the a couple of surprised me that in your 50s you took on a business because you are an idealist, you are trying to world, <laughs> think of the book, and you and you bucking societal trends about single mud was still a challenge mm-hmm. for people. And so, um, you know, so it doesn't surprise me that you did that. It uh, doesn't surprise me that you have a, a much greater vision. Uh, that I want to just uh, tell you what, we're going to have to take a break because um, we're uh, running out of time. But when we come back, I want to talk about that 35-year thing, all right? Mm-hmm. About the fact that this is such a unique uh, publication and presence now and how um, how critical that is right now for all of us, but that legacy is so important just generally. All right, so we'll come back and we'll talk about that and some other things. All right, Mickey? Sounds good. Okay, listeners, we've been talking to Mickey Morissette, the uh, publisher and owner of Minnesota Women's Press. Um, if you like what you hear, visit my website at elliekrug.com, email me at elliejkrug at gmail.com, and follow me on Twitter. The handle is at elliekrug at Ellie Krug on Twitter. We'll be back in a second. Thanks. We're back on AM 950, LE 2.0 Radio. I'm sorry, I, I was seat dancing to um, The Pretenders, and <laughs> I kind of got carried away because Hymn to Her is actually my favorite song. Sorry about that, everyone. Okay, we've been interviewing Mickey Morissette from Minnesota Women's Press. Mickey, I told you before we started, you didn't know what you're going to get with Ellie Krug when you have her interviewing you. <laughs> All right, well, listen, before we did our break, okay, I, I started, I, I, I said I wanted to talk about the fact that Minnesota Women's Press has been publishing for 35 years, the longest feminist-owned, um, feminist-oriented uh, magazine in the country. That is, I think, something, first of all, not most people know, certainly not most Minnesotans. And secondly, talk to me about that legacy. What, I mean, what pressures do you feel, but also what pride do you feel about having 35 years of something that you are now overseeing? Well, I can, I can certainly, I'll start with the pressures, actually. <laughs> the, the current, adver- I mean, 86% of our revenue comes from print advertising. And of course, as everybody knows, newspapers, magazines are always struggling with that. So the pressure right now is to, you know, keep building on that legacy. But one of the g- best things is after COVID struck, um, within a week, I was on a Zoom call with the previous, with the original founders and with the previous owners to talk about the fact that they too had had downturns. I mean, the beginning of the magazine, it was tough. Some people were not sure that there was a reason to have a women-focused uh, publication, right. um, that there was nothing really to talk about. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> oh my God! So right, that, but so that that was a long ramp up. But that's the, but there would be people in 2020 saying that very same thing, right? I mean, it's yeah. a it's a. But go on, go on. I'm interrupting you. Yeah. Well, no. And then you know, in 2008, 2009, the magazine also hit the recession time, and so they figured out they moved it from a biweekly newspaper that it started as to a monthly magazine, which really enabled it to very, very smartly. Um, navigate when a lot of newspapers and a lot of magazines folded. I mean, Ms. Magazine has been free publication. It's distributed at about 500 um, sites in the Twin Cities. There's subscribers who also get it around the state, especially through libraries and co-ops and things. Um, but it is a free publication because we believe in the, you know, that all access to the content and the story sharing should be accessible to everyone. Um, but Mickey, also- Mickey, can I yep. interrupt you? How many readers do you think sure. you have a month? Versus uh, print, um, print as well as digital. Print, uh, we're basically, I think right now we've, we're figuring, because the distribution sites, we don't always know who's picking it up and who's not, although we have some numbers. But we're figuring it's about 60,000 in print. Okay. And then in uh, digital readership, which is the number I'm trying to spike now that we're launching a better digital platform, uh, we figure we've got about 30,000. Okay. Um, that's, well, that's, that's a lot of people. That's, that's nearly that's nearly 100,000 yeah. every month that are reading this very, very important feminist-oriented magazine. We also need to make sure that when we use the word feminist, it's a very broad umbrella. I mean, yes. <laughs> I'd say that's one of the challenges, too, is that there's different generational Definitely, you know, the different generations have have different views of what it means to be feminist. So we like to say feminisms. <laughs> Very good. <laughs> so, all right. So I interrupted you. What are what? So you've got challenges right now because you don't have businesses open where the print um, yeah. uh, version of the magazine is yeah. available. You've got po- right. you've got uh, advertisers who are like, hey, we don't even know if we can keep our doors open, let right. alone advertising. So what are you doing right now to save the magazine? And, and by the way, I know you're going to do it. I mean, I don't have any <laughs> doubt about the fact that this Minnesota Women's Press is going to survive because of you. Um, what, what else are you doing? And, and how can our listeners right now help you? That is what's yeah. very important. Yeah. Well, thanks for bringing that up. Yeah. Um, the biggest thing that we would love to see is uh, is increasing traffic on womenspress.com. We know that the readers are definitely out there for the content, um, but we also know that awareness of, uh, for one, the website is uh, relaunched in September. So with a, it has a whole new look and feel to it. So a lot of people aren't really even aware of that. They can read the full publication online in our digital editions. Um, and it really, the, the stronger our website traffic is, um, the more things we're going to be able to do both with future grants around certain single topic areas like the ecosystem. Um, We have new content uh, digital content sponsors that are enabling us to do more, as you know, in LGBTQ content and and education. So we both 
But to do that, you know, it is very much an ecosystem. We need to show the traffic so that the sponsors come come on board. Um, and so very much, very helpful just to visit womenspress.com and see. We just launched our first digital-only magazine, the May issue on music and movement is up. And it includes, you know, songs from a lot of the f- featured local artists, um, most of whom I had never heard of. It's amazing. <laughs> I had my assistant editor, who is a bit younger than I, do all most all of the um, scoping out of who the artists were that we featured this month. Oh, that's great. We're- that's great. Have you, talk, have you talked to The Current about that and maybe do a little bit of intersectionality? They're actually the one, Andrea Swenson, who's from, who does yep. the local show on The Current. She's one of the writers in this issue. Ah, she that's wrote great. about the book. Yeah. And our June issue is also going to be fantastic, Breaking the Binary. Um, we're also then doing something on climate in July. So I'm always, it's thematic, so it's challenging because you've got a whole different set of writers um, submitting every single month on different topics. Um, so it's just constantly churning. But um, but that's also, you know, kind of what I love about it and what the readers love about it. So right. the other thing that people can do to help, we currently have a reader survey that we're um, that we're promoting that is open because we are planning for some very new ways to direct our content in the coming year. And for that, we really want to know what readers are most interested in. Um, There's a whole set of questions related to that. That also tracks back to being able to tell our advertisers who our readers are. We know they love listening to the radio. We know they love books. We know they're very social justice oriented. They love theater. Um, So, this reader survey, come, we do it every two years. It's incredibly important because I do have some bigger plans for the coming year. And for that, I really need to know kind of where our base is um, right now. Where, so. where and where can uh, listeners find the survey? We have a promo on, on our womenspress.com. We also have our Facebook page, which it shows up on. We promote it there. Um, it's a survey monkey um, thing, and but we have it definitely um, visible from womenspress.com. Okay, so so if listeners want to support the, the magazine, they can go take the survey, um, which will help you decide and, and direct um, energies for the future. Is there also yeah. some, are you, do you have a subscriber kind of mechanism yeah. coming in place here? And you want to please we talk do. about we, that. Yeah, we do have, you know, we do have a couple hundred subscribers already around the state. You know, even though our publication is free, a lot of women do support us by subscribing, even though they don't need to. And others who just don't, aren't close to our 500 distribution sites, especially outside the um, Twin Cities area. So we do have subscribers, and there is a subscribe slash donate page available on the website. Um, and that it, we've had, we have very loyal readers um, and advertisers who have been with us for three decades. Um, I'm also finding, you know, them on the reader survey. They're they're the first ones on there, and so <laughs> yeah, the mission of the magazine survives. And that's why I think they've been able to weather as many cycles as they have, and that's why it will be able to to survive what we're in right now. Even though, yeah, advertising is not strong, but again, that ecosystem is based on the fact that we support local small businesses, yep. um, and that's you know, and, and and that's what we're here to do when when there more of them are able to open their doors again. 
All right. Well, so Mickey, again, I have no doubt that the magazine is going to weather everything. And with your great leadership. Now, here's the question for you. What made you an idealist? Because long before mm-hmm. Minnesota Women's Press came along, you were out uh, trying to make the world a, a better place. So how, <laughs> how did you become such an idealist? I can, <clears throat> I, I can point to three specific things that I've been thinking about. Is When I was quite young, my parents um, took in a couple members of a traveling gospel group from Chicago. Into They were traveling through our small town. I grew up in Prior Lake. And um, my one of the sets of neighbors was just livid because these were black men oh, that we goodness. were letting sleep in our home. And I was about eight years old. I could not understand. I, you know, I knew, I knew these mm-hmm. neighbors as normal people. <laughs> I could not understand the psychology of that level of intolerance. And it it kind of planted a little seed to kind of try to figure out how to understand why some people think the way that they do, how their perspectives are so weird. I mean, it didn't, I didn't go deep into it at the time, but I know that planted a seed that there are things I don't understand about, about how the mind works and why people have bias. And, and so that became an interest in, of inquiry for me, I guess, how people, what makes people tick and how can you adjust that and help mm-hmm. sort of evolve is where I've grown every the years. I also, my very first person I ever interviewed, my mother had gone back to school when I was in middle school and she was taking a, a humanities class from a Holocaust survivor. We were studying the Holocaust at school. She set up a time for me to be able to talk to him, and I asked him questions. He was very, you know, about personal yep. story sharing and how powerful that is. Yep. And for me in middle school, having somebody trust me with their story was huge. Um, and I knew, the you know, the power of story there um, at, at a pretty young age and how impactful that can be to experience things in from other people's eyes to whatever extent you can. Um, and then shortly after that, we were also learning about the evils of smoking. And so I wrote a letter to my dad, who was a smoker at the time, and um, about why he should quit. And um, I, I put a lot of thought into the letter, used my words carefully, told him my story, and he quit cold turkey. <laughs> and that really also infused me. My my dad died last month, and so I've been oh. thinking a lot about the influence he's had on my life and my writing. Um, I started off as a sports writer, which is another whole story. <laughs> but but the power the power of words, the power of story, and trying to bridge the gaps of tolerance tolerance between people is really what what I'd like my writing to be all about and what the magazine is for. Well, I mean, you just warmed my, you just spiked my idealistic heart with everything that you just said, and it is <laughs> so incredibly true. We break down barriers as we get to know other people. We do. Yeah. We just yeah. have to get past the fear of other that keeps us from attempting to break down those barriers. Yeah. So, all right. Well, Mickey, we've run out of time. Um, I just want to tell you, it's been an honor to have you on the show. And you know 
I will do whatever I can personally to help with the magazine. Um, and, and I just want to thank you for uh, your voice and your hard work and for leading Minnesota Women's Press and keeping it pushed forward, even in the midst of our pandemic. Okay? Thank you very much, Ellie. And, you know, I sought you out as a contributor to Minnesota Women's Press because of the work and storytelling you do. And it's, it's invaluable. So thank you for the work you're doing. Thanks for that. I appreciate it. All right, listeners. Well, uh, that wraps up my interview with Mickey Morissette from Minnesota Women's Press. Go and visit the website, womenspress.com. Take the survey, become a subscriber, support the magazine, and do whatever you can to spread the word about what a wonderful 35-year-old publication. Okay, when we come back from our break, I'll do my C block where I'll talk a little bit about my work and about something else, a celebration of a birthday. Thanks. We'll be back in a second. Radio on AM 950. Mickey Morissette, wonderful. Her publication, Minnesota Women's Press, also wonderful. Please pick it up, subscribe to it, support it, okay? Because um, small publications like Mickey's are at risk. And, um, and so she can use all the support that she can get. So there you go. All right, we're in my C block now where I talk about my work as an idealist trying to make the world a better place. But rather than um, completely talk about me for the next few minutes, uh, let me start out by asking about you. How are you doing? Yes, my dear listener, on this second weekend in March 2021, how are you doing? Has life gotten any easier? Do you have more hope now than you did two months ago? I ask in part... Because last night, I listened to President Joe. Gosh, I so love being able to say that. I listened to President Joe as he marked the one-year anniversary of the pandemic. And today actually marks today, um, this day, um, the 12th is the day I'm taping this, okay? The 12th marks the last time I ever stood in front of an audience of humans in an actual room or physical setting doing my work as a trainer and speaker. Last time, it seems like a decade ago. Boy, I miss that. Now don't, but I, don't fret. I mean, I've done more than 100 online trainings since then to relatively good, good reviews and acclaim. So, but last night, President Joe did something fairly incredible. He said that he needed us. Do you remember that? He said that he needed you, that he needed me, that he needed all of us to do our part to mask up and to get vaccinated, and that on the horizon, very soon, we'll be able to gather again, be able to hug, be able to be with each other. But the idea that our president would say that he needed us versus I alone can do it. What 
a contrast. And in telling us that he needs us, President Joe also let us know that we matter to him. What a concept that our president of all, our president of all the people, okay, he's a president of all the people, would say that we matter to him. And so I'll repeat, how are you doing, my dear friends in Radio Land and the blogosphere? I urge you to take care of yourself, to give yourself a break. I always urge people to simply ask themselves one question every day. You know what that question is? If you've been listening to the show, I'm sure I've spoken about this before, but here you go. The question to ask yourself every day is this. Am I doing my best under current circumstances? You always got to throw the current circumstances in. You got to always do that because circumstances are always changing. Sometimes they're changing between the morning and the early afternoon. Those circumstances are changing. So you've got to always measure, am I doing my best under the present situation I find myself? If your answer back to you is yes, you are doing the best you can under current circumstances, you know what? That is absolutely good enough. It is. You do not need to be perfect. You don't. You do not need to do everything. You don't. All you've got to do is act reasonably in life and just try your best. Isn't that what we tell the kids? We, I mean, I know that there are you know, some tiger moms or tiger dads out there, but for the most part, okay, we tell our kids, do your best. That's all we tell them. So why can't we follow our own advice? Um, and if you're not doing your best, okay, you know, work on what's keeping you from doing that, okay? But get, continue, even if, you're, even if you're not doing your best, give yourself strong doses of self-compassion in the process of trying to do your best. As for me, I'm all right. I've been able to start riding my bike again. <laughs> I just can't tell you how much, how great that is. And the other night, I came across a wonderful sunset. Just glorious. It was so great that I started, I started laughing and yelling out loud. Yes! Yes! It was this glorious orange-yellow glow going down the horizon. Just... Oh, and the clouds around were luminescent. It was unbelievable. So, I'm all right. Finally, if you are feeling better than two months ago, please consider that you might be feeling hope again. Hope that finally we may soon be past the isolation and the pain. That is coming. We can see it. It's off in the distance. We're not there yet, but we can see it. Okay, I need to... To give a big thanks to my producer, Brett Johnson. Brett, you always make me look good. And to you, my friends, take care. I wish you the very best. Go out, be good to someone. Work to make the world a better place. If we all do that together, my God, what we can accomplish. Okay, that's your friendly idealist, Ellie Krug, signing off. 
I'll see you next week. Thanks. <laughs>